Welcome to this week's edition of Ocean Allison, where I bring you the best in ocean science, education, and conservation through conversations with people who are creating positive change for the ocean. Allison podcast episode is brought to you by you, the listeners. A big thank you to everyone that's contributed a dollar or more per episode via my subscription-based funding platform at patreon.com slash oceanallison. And for those that haven't, visit patreon.com slash oceanallison to watch my video and learn more about how you can help keep the podcast episodes coming. And now to this week's episode. This week's Ocean Advocate is Beth Brady. Beth is a marine biologist studying manatee acoustics, working to understand what are manatees saying. Hi, Beth. Welcome to the show. Hi, Allison. Yeah, thanks so much for joining me today. I'm very excited to have you on the show and to learn more about manatees myself, as well as share that knowledge with listeners. So listeners, to give you a little bit of background on Beth, she is a PhD candidate at Florida Atlantic University in South Florida, close to where I grew up. So I have a love for manatees from growing up in South Florida, and uh, I wanted to share that love with all of you today. So I Uh, Connected with Beth on social media recently and discovered what she's researching with manatees and was totally blown away. So I wanted to have her on the show. So Beth, I want to kind of start out with possibly like a little funny exercise. So I want to set the stage for listeners. Could you describe a manatee to someone that maybe has never seen one? Like what do they look like? Uh, a manatee, I would say, is kind of a large, rather large body, has a rounded uh, fluke or tail, um, has a face similar to, I, I would say, somewhat like a walrus, has a lot of whiskers on their face, has a lot of hairs all across their body, has flippers, but they have nails, kind of like uh, humans do. Uh, they have two forelimbs that they use to paddle and use to grasp objects. And they are herbivores, which means they love to eat any kind of plant material. And what color are they? They're brownish, grayish in color. To give listeners kind of a sense of how big they can get, can you give us, you know, a weight or a length measurement on how big they can get? They can be about six to seven feet long and about 1,200 pounds. Uh, Females usually weigh more than males. Calves when they were born are about anywhere between 60 to 70 pounds. They get pretty big. <laughs> they definitely do. <laughs> um, okay, so hopefully listeners, now you have a visual of a manatee in your head. I mean, even if you've seen pictures or, or you've seen them in real life, maybe you've got a great visual in there now. So Beth, I would love it if you could also give us some kind of general manatee knowledge. I know you were talking about how they're herbivores and they only eat plants. Um, Maybe you could talk a little bit about, you know, where are manatees found? What animals are manatees closely related to? You know, any kind of fun manatee facts that you have that you usually share with people? 
Okay. Well, manatees have this really rich evolutionary history. So they actually go back about 50 million years. And they actually were originally thought to be found off the coast of Africa, which is why they're related mostly to elephants and rock hyraxes. And rock hyrax are just a little rodent-type creature. Um, they actually came over here to the Atlantic and the Caribbean, and then they went up into Florida. Um, and they've been here in Florida for the past 2 million years. We have about 6,000 of these animals. It's been a steady increase. And recently, uh, they have come off the uh, endangered species list, which is always a good thing. So they're now at a threatened status. There are four different populations. There's the Amazonian manatee. There's the West African manatee. The West Indian manatee, which is composed of the Florida manatee, which we all know and love, and the Antillean manatee, which is based out of Cuba. And then you have the dugong, which is over um, in the Australia, in the Indo-Pacific area. So you have those four extant subspecies. And, um, well, they have really, really good hearing, excellent hearing range. Their vision isn't that good, um, but they usually travel in very turbid environments. They're very tactile oriented, so those bristles that I talked about, on the, they have them on their face and on their back, and they actually use those, we think, to possibly navigate their environment. They usually have a gestation period of about 14 months. Um, they rarely give birth to twins, but sometimes that does happen, and we have, I actually have got to see some twins this past year. Wow, that's cool. So hopefully that's a lot of great manatee knowledge for all of you. And I always love to think about the fact that they're so closely related to elephants because they are mammals, just to note that for everybody as well. They are marine mammals. They do breathe air and have lungs. Okay, so Beth, to get into a little bit more about you and your research now, what got you started studying manatees? Well, when I first uh, was interested in manatees, I became an intern at Florida Fish and Wildlife in their photo ID department. And I was interested. I knew they made vocalizations, but I knew there wasn't a lot of research on them. So I had initially gone to uh, Nova Southeastern University where I decided I wanted to study their vocalizations, categorize them, and see what kind of sounds they made, which I have uh, continued into my PhD work. So I traveled to a few places around the coast of Florida, namely um, Crystal River, Blue Springs up in the St. John's River area, and um, here in Port Everglades, and recorded um, manatee vocalizations and categorized their vocalizations um, into six, six categories, which um, I can use to uh, look at what they use these vocalizations for. What initially sparked you to start working with Florida Fish and Wildlife? Um, I've always kind of liked marine mammals in general and working with the, the manatees of Florida Fish and Wildlife, seeing how different and unique they were. Um, they're so much different than dolphins. We all think of dolphins as these highly intelligent species, and sometimes we think about manatees as not being as intelligent. They do have what we call a, a flat or a non-ridged brain. Dolphins and humans like us, we have these gyrated brains, which are supposed to be indicate intelligence. And we think, well, maybe manatees aren't that smart. And actually, they're a lot smarter than we give them credit for. They were able to perform perceptual tasks, so such as vision studies and asking what can they hear. And, and using that, we found that manatees were able to remember how to do these tasks for really long periods of time, which means they have more intelligence than we actually give them credit for. Wow, that's amazing. Okay, so like I said, you're currently a PhD candidate at Florida Atlantic University, and you're going all around the state of Florida to study these manatees and the sounds that they make. And you, you did mention this just a little bit ago, that studying manatee acoustics is a relatively new area of research. There really isn't 
you know, you're kind of one of the pioneers in this field right now. Why do you think that is? Um, it's possibly because they're difficult to study in the wild. Um, ideally, you would like to be able to see what your animal is doing all the time. Um, so places like Crystal River and Blue Springs have really clear water. However, you also want to know which animal is vocalizing. So, and that helps your research too. So when you go to places like this, they're warm water refuges, which means that there's going to be a lot of animals there. So it's hard to put one hydrophone in the water and say, oh, that's the animal that's making the sound. And plus you have the human factor there in places like Crystal River where people are actually still allowed to uh, swim with the animals. So you have a human influence, which may not be really good for looking at calls that they would make under normal uh, circumstances. So that and maybe there's been more documentation about uh, dolphins, most likely because they are, are more complex. They live in more complex societies. They usually travel in groups. They use echolocation. Where manatees are a little bit different, and manatees in Florida don't have a lot of predation. So they don't have those effects. They don't have to cooperatively forage for food, meaning their food is kind of ubiquitous. It's everywhere. They don't have to fight or compete for that. So manatees might not have as many sounds to create or reasons to make sounds as other more advanced animals do, such as elephants or monkeys or, or dolphins. Okay. So that's maybe why there's not been as much research. It's possible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just think it's fascinating that, you know, we're in 2017 and, you know, some of your research on manatee acoustics is, is really some of the groundbreaking initial research that we have on manatee acoustics in general. So I, th I think it's fascinating. I think it's great that you're doing it. So next, I'd love to ask you, what techniques do you use to study manatee acoustics? I mean, I, I've uh, helped with some other acoustic studies before, but I think for listeners, it'd be great if you could kind of describe how are you studying these manatee sounds? Basically, there's a couple of different ways you can do it. I prefer to use what's called passive acoustics, which means I put a hydrophone in the water and I actively listen to the sounds. I can listen to their sounds, um, which means I tend to stay out of the water. I do put what's called a, a, a buoy, and I'll put a hydrophone in the buoy and put it out in the water. That way I can stay out of the animal's way, basically, and just put it in it be free-floating. Then I'll just monitor them, if I can, mostly from land. Um, so I'll put out multiple hydrophones. Multiple hydrophones are good because then you can create an array, which means I can probably localize a little bit better which animal is making the sound. So I'll use three or four hydrophones. I'll have video cameras. And the equipment that I use is anyone can generally use. Hydrophones. There are some relatively inexpensive ones that run about $100, and they can range upwards of to $6,000. Um, I use one that ranges around $450. Uh, there's also uh, a recording device to put your um, hydrophone into and connect it to. Those run about $250, and you can find them on the Internet. They're relatively um, inexpensive. And then I just put them in a, in a Pelican case to keep those electronic elements nice and watertight proof, you know, so they don't get wet. And that's basically what you use. The buoys are relatively inexpensive. So almost anyone can go out and listen um, and record animal sounds for it's relatively inexpensive. Yeah. And just to clarify for listeners, a hydrophone, some of you may have never heard that word. Um, a hydrophone is like a microphone, but it goes underwater. Exactly. <laughs> okay, exactly. cool. And so right now, listeners, I would love to play a clip um, an audio clip from Beth's research that she has gathered with these hydrophones um, of some manatee sounds. So um, here's a little clip for you with that.
Okay, so Beth, you are the expert here. What are these manatees saying? Well, it's really hard to decipher that as the moment. Uh, what I have found is it appears that when they get into these groups, because usually manatees are traveling by themselves. They prefer to be in groups, but they usually don't stay with the same animals. So when they come into an area similar to one that I had for, um, it was in Bradenton, it's a freshwater area where they'll come to drink. They'll come in and they'll play, which they call cavorting. It simulates um, mating activity. It's for juveniles to practice mating for when they get older and they get better at it. So they may be more successful in mating. But it appears that these animals make sounds emoting their excitement level or arousal level. So you may have a call that is just very simplistic. And then the more they um, excited they get, the more louder it gets, the more intensity, the more noise you get into the sound. I've also noticed that um, mothers and calves, uh, they need to stay in contact with each other in the wild. Um, so they will. Ha- it appears that the calves have a more specific call type that's different than adults, which they may use to stay in contact with one another. Very interesting. And so, like you mentioned, I, kn- I know when we talk a lot about, you know, dolphin acoustics or whale acoustics, oftentimes we do talk about foraging. Are manatees mm-hmm. not really making noises in terms of eating? Because like you said, they're eating plants. Well, they don't vocalize a whole lot, but what they do do a lot of is is chewing. Listeners, we're going to listen to a manatee chewing for a few seconds here. So those sounds are actually quite loud and actually can draw in other animals. Like I said, they're very acute hearing. So just them chewing could be acute to some other animal that's in the vicinity that there's a food source that they could get access to. So as a manatee scientist, I'm sure that you've had many, many, many interactions with manatees, you know, both Mm -hmm. above the water and below the water. What has been your most memorable experience you've had with a manatee thus far? Most memorable experience? Well, I have to admit, I've been to Mexico and I went there to record the Antillean manatee. And normally as biologists, we don't get in the water too often. We tend to leave the animals to do their own thing and kind of watch more of what they do. But uh, being able to get into the water and interact with these animals and be able to put my hands on the manatees themselves and interact was one of the most enjoyable experiences I've ever had. I, I, they almost had to tell me, go in the water and touch them because I was just so hesitant because I'm used to watching them and being the biologist as opposed to getting in the water with them and interacting with them. So that was an incredible experience for me. Yeah. And, and what, what did the manatees act like? They enjoyed it. They actually, um, I was feeding them at the same time. So they took their peck flippers and actually hugged onto my leg to make sure that they were going to be the ones who got fed and kind of pushed each other out of the way. Uh, But they also had uh, babies in there too, which is another reason why I was there is to uh, record the infants. So I got to swim up close and listen to them interact with their moms and the calls that they were making to their moms and how they were communicating with each other while they were, um, while I was swimming right next to them. Wow, that sounds like a really amazing experience. It definitely was. And then, yeah, you mentioned a little bit earlier about manatees being taken off of the endangered species list, um, and now they're listed as threatened. I know that there was a little bit of controversy when that decision was being made, and some people saying that's such a great thing, and some people questioning, you know, are now populations of manatees going to go down, or, you know, what's going to happen? Can you kind of share your thoughts on that? controversial side of this topic? 
Yeah, so actually that just came about actually just a couple of weeks ago on uh, International Manatee Days when they actually upgraded their status. So it's kind of like uh, a pros and cons. In one way, you really want your animal to do better and your species to increase and take off in that endangered species list. I guess a lot of the controversy stemmed around, you know, we really don't know what's going to happen to them in the future. We have such a changing climate, a changing environment. We're not quite sure how that's going to affect manatees. Um, they're relatively resilient to a lot, um, but they are prone to, to red tide events. They do get really sick and they will have succumbed to those. They also still tend to get hit by boats. So it's really hard to say how much protection that people are normally afraid of, like them losing protection as opposed to keeping the protection. So you still have the federal regulations in place, but people were concerned about local regulations that they may get more lax. Like you may lose some of your um, speed zone requirements where people would have to slow down because it was a manatee no wake zone that they would have to, they would take those away. Um, we're also worried about them losing their habitat. So we're just not quite sure how this will affect the manatee overall. If you take away some of these um, regulations that you have in place, if that will happen. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. And it'll be interesting to see you know, what does happen in the future. And hopefully those restrictions aren't taken away so that the manatees are still able to continue and, and thrive. Right. Yeah, exactly. What would you say is the biggest take home message that you've learned through your research? <sighs> the biggest take home message is, um, I think that vocalizations and their vocalizations can be used in so many different ways. We have a, a changing climate and they're starting to use acoustics a lot more to see if there's changes in ecosystems. And manatees, Florida manatees in particular, are known as a keystone species, which means any change to them can signify a possible change in your ecosystem. So by monitoring their vocalizations, we could possibly or potentially use it to monitor changes. Like I said, they've been around for over 15 million years and actually been able to um, look at seagrass beds and to find how seagrass beds have changed over the years by the populations of manatees. So just by possibly knowing if they're present or absent in specific areas could potentially give us information to ecosystem health. It could also potentially be used to look at other manatee species, such as the Antillian, where we don't have a lot of information about where they're located or uh, habitat preferences. Yeah. So that's kind of more like the science side of things, you know, how your research is, is really applicable to those science topics, um, which is really important, obviously. Another thing that I've been thinking of in terms of the importance of your research is, is kind of more on the human connection side of things. I know that you do quite a bit of outreach and talks to the public about your research. Do you feel like, you know, when you play an audio clip of a manatee vocalizing, do you feel as though it helps humans to better connect to manatees? I think it does. People usually, they, they love them because they're cute and they're just like very simplistic animals and they're very curious about their environment. And I think just being able to connect with them, one, if you can't swim with them or come in the air to Chris River Swim, it's just a nice way to learn about manatees and you know, learn about the sounds they create that's different than, than our own or different from a dolphin or different from a whale. They're just unique. And yeah, just learning anything about your species makes you more prone to want to protect it. Yeah, exactly. If listeners want to connect with manatees even further than listening to this podcast, where would you recommend that 
uh, listener goes if they wanted to see manatees, whether it's above the water um, or below the water in a, in a great environment, where would you recommend that people could interact with manatees? There's a couple of different ways you can do that without leaving your home. Um, places like Apollo Beach in Tampa have a website, the Tico Power Plant, where you can actually go. And when the manatees are in there during the wintertime, they have cameras where you can actually control for a short period of time and look and see the animals are in there. Um, they also have one on Blue Springs and also at the Riviera Beach Power Plant. If you want to actually come to Florida and you're going to be able to visit, the best place to go, again, is, is Crystal River, where you can actually still swim with the manatees. I recommend do that, doing that more in the wintertime as opposed to the summertime because that's when they're there and aggregating in the area. Also, Blue Springs State Park is another place. Can't swim with the animals there, but they do get large aggregations in the wintertime that um, you would be able to uh, see. During the summertime, it's, it's hit or miss. Um, there are some places um, that I go to um, in some places in Bradenton um, that manatees frequent. So you need to look for those freshwater areas. There are also some websites out there you can possibly look at that might give you an idea of where you can go to see the animals during the summertime. But you're much more prone to see a manatee during the wintertime um, as opposed to the summertime. And why is that actually? We didn't talk about that. Why are manatees attracted to, you know, this warmer water during the wintertime? Well, even though they're huge, they don't have the ability to thermoregulate, meaning they can't keep themselves warm. So when the water temperature gets below 68 degrees, they can have what's called cold stress or similar to frostbite in humans. So they need to go to these warm water refuges to stay warm. And they'll stay there for a significant period of time. They'll stay there sometimes for up to a week without going out to forage for food. Um, and then they'll stay there through most of the winter when the temperatures are still cold until it warms up and then they'll leave the area. Okay, so last question I have for you, Beth. You know, many people like to joke around that, you know, they can speak whale and they make these funny noises or like from Finding Nemo when Dory speaks whale. Are you trying to learn how to speak manatee through your research? <laughs> I'm trying to learn what they're saying, but I'm not quite sure I've quite figured it out yet. But uh, I do know that uh, I do try to speak it to other people when they ask me what a manatee sounds like and it kind of goes eat, eat. <laughs> <laughs> very <laughs> nice cool well um for listeners if you have been interested in what beth and i have talked about today with all of her amazing manatee acoustics research and trying to understand what are manatees really saying i will be linking to a really awesome video that florida atlantic university um harbor branch institute put out on youtube it's called sound of the manatee and it features beth's research so i'll be linking to that video so you guys can watch it and again hear some of those sounds and see some really cool manatee videos so beth i really want to thank you for all of the amazing work that you're doing for the ocean you're studying this new field of research surrounding manatees that really is in its infancy and you're helping to gather this knowledge not only so we can learn about manatees presently but also potentially how they're going to be affected in the future with climate change as well as like we mentioned you're connecting people to manatees even more by allowing them to hear what they're <laughs> hear what they're saying and those sounds that they're making so I want to thank you for that and I also want to thank you for being on the show today I really enjoyed talking with you thank you Allison the pleasure is all mine appreciate it 
You just heard Beth Brady, marine biologist studying manatee acoustics, working to understand what are manatees saying. To learn more about the topics discussed in this podcast, visit my website at oceanallison.com. And tune into next month's episode to hear another conversation between me and someone creating positive change for the ocean.